0: Everybody. I am um, very happy to be interviewing Aaron White, who is the author of this book, which I could not recommend enough, um, Recovering, here's better put his glasses on, from brokenness and addiction to blessedness and community, and I think uh, given the time of year and where we find ourselves, this is a message we could all stand to hear. So um, with that, Aaron, could you just introduce yourself and tell us about how you came to do this work? Sure,
1: I'm Aaron White and I'm living in the downtown east side of Vancouver um, with my family, my wife and four children and I live in a community house with uh, 13 people, kids, parents, singles, family, a dog, a cat, a turtle, two frogs, some fish and some mice that we don't want uh, here. Uh, we live uh, beside a chicken factory on one side and a essentially a functioning uh, brothel on the other side and across the street from Oppenheimer Park, which is uh, where uh, the, the homeless tent village often is. It isn't right now. It's been fenced up, but our neighborhood is um kind of renowned in vancouver it's the place that vancouver wants to hide from visitors uh you know it's it's they call it they used to call it the 24 block now it's about the 12 block Ten thousand, they said ten thousand addicts in the area uh you know hugely hit by the fentanyl crisis and and so on it's been, been a long time coming and i got involved uh, in this kind of work because, and I didn't even really know this growing up, but my grandmother used to work in this neighborhood, working in the prisons and and so on, and would take people home uh, into, to her house, which was in another neighborhood. And I think I was really imbued with that uh, from her and from my parents. I grew up in the Salvation Army, um, but didn't have a real connection to the world of addictions or anything like that growing up um, until I started working um, in in shelters and in the prisons and stuff when I was 18 years old and that just opened up a world to me of uh, people who I had kind of been taught I'd been inculturated to think of as other um, even as sort of dangerous or something uniquely broken about them and started to learn that they were human and were interesting and became my friends uh, and and that really shifted a lot of things for me I had you know a lot of the the church stuff the theology stuff kind of growing up but I didn't have a lot of connection with people in that place and, and I started to and it became uh, just a part of my life so uh, did a little bit of work in Toronto in Regent Park in Toronto which is a kind of another really people would call it a rough neighborhood but again opened up my eyes to a lot of things and then 17 years ago moved my family back out here moved into the downtown side and just, we just try and pray and be good neighbors to people and um, yeah that's what we've been doing for the last 17 years
0: and so would you identify your work as a ministry I was a I or was a pastor yes. yeah well I was a pastor
1: for for a number of years with a Salvation Army Corps as they call it here in the in the neighborhood most of my uh, most of the congregants were in addictions and recovery um you know, a lot, probably 60% of our people um, became followers of Jesus in jail. Uh, so that was a big part of, of what we did. And it was kind of under the official banner of the Salvation Army. A couple of years ago, I left that, that job, um, but have continued on, you know, in a more organic and just life way. So I do work for 24 seven prayer Canada. I, I lead that nationally. So that is a ministry and I'm involved in a local group called Jacob's well, which is also would be called a ministry, but I know I've been saying for years, if I wouldn't do this without a paycheck, then I shouldn't do it for a paycheck. And I have done it for a couple of years without a paycheck. And so, okay, I think this is just how we want to live.
0: Oh, wow. Um, just, because the curiosity is just getting me. What's it like for your children?
1: <laughs> That's probably the number one question that we get. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a list of free, frequently asked questions. And they're like, what about the children? <laughs>
0: um,
1: so they've been raised here. So they actually don't know any different. You know, this is, this is their neighborhood. And I've, I've often said, I would rather raise them here than near a mall. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of scared of that, a little bit afraid of that influence. Um, not so much here. And some people think, well, aren't they, don't you think they're going to be attracted to, to, you know, drugs being in this neighborhood? And I'm like, not a chance. I mean, they're really, I mean, you see the impact of, of addiction in this neighborhood in a way that you don't in a lot of other places. My children will never think that drugs are like cool. They will never think that at all. Um, You know, we have to deal with our other addiction issues for sure, Uh, but but things are pretty stark here. And so they've seen um, the worst of it, but they've also seen people come and detox on our couch. They've seen the difference of somebody who was addicted to meth and then not. You know, who was was free from that. So um, they've seen they're not afraid of it, but they're also not attracted to it. Um, Also, it's a neighbor. It's a beautiful neighborhood in a lot of ways, uh, where they are incredibly well protected. You know, they've got a lot of bodyguards watching out for them that they don't even know about. Um, and, and even when they were little kids, when we'd walk down the street, you know, we had to have rules like you can't pick things up off the street that you don't know what that, you know, that kind of stuff. But people would start yelling as they come down the street, kids on the block, kids on the block, and they'd put their stuff away. Cause there's a deep protection of innocence in this neighborhood. So yeah, I, pro- I probably wouldn't want to raise them anywhere else in Vancouver. You know, it'd be either here or on a farm somewhere. Uh, so I think they've been raised uniquely and, and well, and they've got to be part of uh, the, the kind of beautiful redemption story of a lot of people's lives.
0: Right. They must live in a world of stories. Absolutely. Yeah. And
1: they know my, my son once, uh, one of my sons uh, at a summer camp, they had a talent show and he decided he would get up and he would just tell a bunch of my stories that he had heard a number of times. And he had kind of studied how I told them and the inflection of it and everything, you know. And so he, some of, they can tell the stories almost as well as I can. So, uh, yeah, they, they know them.
0: <laughs> and, I, and I bet that they get stories about you from some of those people.
1: They, they do, yeah. They, when they go around to some places, they say, oh, that's, yeah, they, they hear about, they've heard about us. And I think it's quite important. We're at that point now where we're saying, okay, now you need to own this story for yourself you know, it's, it's not just that you're part, you're just riding on coattails. You're actually, you're part of this. And so what is your story? How are you owning this? You know, what is your engagement? Cause they're, they're at the point now where they have to make decisions for themselves of how they want to live.
0: Yeah. And I
1: don't just assume they'll want to live like this. I mean, it, it is hard. It is, um, all encompassing. So, yeah.
0: It's discipleship. Yeah. Um, so you, you start working in, in, I thought you said prisons and shelters as a, as a young person. Yeah, And was it a gradual, it must've been a gradual learning experience because being in the world of addiction, there's just so, there's so many narratives. There's so many treatment modalities. There's so many individual experiences. Um, did it take you a long time to learn that whole cultural thing?
1: Oh, very much. Yeah. It took, a, took, I I still am. Um, you know, I, when I was 18, I think the, the really helpful thing in some ways is I, I didn't know very much about any of that stuff. And I just came in and met people and, and they became, you know, friends. And so I didn't, I didn't come in through any particular, um, psych program or yeah I didn't so it, it there wasn't that lens for me um for this is how I have to see things I could just sort of meet individuals and eventually I picked up that language and and you know so the last 25 years have just been spent listening to and being friends with but I didn't have any particular commitment to any any one lens that I had to see things through so I was able to kind of take in quite a bit of other, you know, a, a, more of a variety, I think, of a understanding of what this
0: was. When you started learning about 12-step dynamics and such, there must have been a point where you saw the, the sort of Christian heritage there. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I... Mean, was I, I, it right out of the gate, or did that kind of evolve too? I mean,
1: it's pretty early on. I, I was going into a... A recovery center and doing just some some teaching they called it reflections every week and um, it was a Christian recovery center but the the people who'd been doing it before me had very intentionally not done Christian things um, we're, we're almost kind of dismissive of it and um, so I came in and I said actually want to I want to be a more a bit more explicitly kind of where are the roots of this where's the roots of this coming from and so I started really exploring the 12 steps and the, and the biblical roots of those things and and so started going through them and saying, here's where I see the real connection here in the story of faith and the story of, of uh, 12 steps. And there was obviously some resistance to that because of part of the narrative of 12 steps is we're spiritual, but not religious. Right. And I remember people telling me early, early on, Hey, you know, religious people are, are afraid of hell. Spiritual people have already been through hell and aren't afraid of it anymore. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. As I started exploring the 12 step kind of, program more and more and I have a deep respect for it Um, but I saw it as one of the most religious things I've ever seen Um, in in terms of ritual and tradition and repetition which is not necessarily bad it's just um, I said oh I you know everybody kind of wants to see their thing as not you know not religious or not you know in that way but it, it really is and so I said let's draw some of the comparisons and let's just let's just talk truth and as I would come in I'd say look I'm going to talk about stuff from a Christian perspective. You don't have to agree with me on any of this stuff. In fact, if you want during this time, you can have a nap. You know, I, I don't require you to listen to me. Um, but I challenge you to because I think there's truth here. And let's talk about that together. And I loved it when people would come up afterwards and go, I didn't agree with this. I'm like, great, let's talk about that. Let's see where the real stuff is. And, and, and in, inevitably, those would be the people who I found would we'd grasp some of the deeper truths as we walk, started walking together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, there's a ne- an inevitability to where does this come from? If it really touches you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in my, in my discussion with Dunnington, he just, he's pretty adamant the church could learn a lot from the church basements.
1: Oh, I mean that that's really in a lot of ways why I wrote the book. You know, as I was discussing with, with some of my church friends and around the world as I was writing this book, they said, Oh, that'll be a great book for people who are struggling with addictions. I said, Oh, that's not particularly why I'm writing that book. I'm writing the book for you who you are from the church. You're <laughs> struggling with with other addictions that you don't even, you know, know about. And you need like you need these people in your life to to kind of shine some light on stuff that you're not prepared. To, you know, I, I write in the book, I said I've seen more spiritual work. In some of these church basements than I ever have in the church, you know, taking things like resentments seriously and confessions seriously and making amends seriously, which I have not seen in the church a lot of times. So, yeah, we, we need it.
0: Um, you make such a great point And I guess I'm going to jump the gun a little bit. So our mutual influence Bruce Alexander you know he likes to define addiction as uh, one of the ways he does is any overwhelming involvement with a substance or an activity that is harmful to you or your social relations mm-hmm. and I've been incorporating that into my work with addicts and one of the things I love to say is you know um overwhelming involvement at the expense of time and energy your family um, but it can be heroin, but it can also be this thing or shopping or whatever. And then I say, now look at the civilian world around you and what do you see? And, you know, a lot of times a little goes off and they say, well, everyone's addicted. And that's kind of a cliche now, but when they, when you put it that way, you know, the kid has to compete for a mother's attention with a cell phone sort of thing. And what's so beautiful about that is that it takes the stigma off of the individual addict. He's he's suffering from the same thing that everybody else is suffering from. Yeah. just has a different taste in drugs. Yeah. Well, and I love
1: how Bruce Alexander talks about addiction as an adaptation. Yes. To dislocation, an adaptation to pain. Gabriel Maté talks about it as a response to pain. Yeah. And as, as a solution, not a good one. He he actually says addiction is a stupid friend.
0: Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm.
1: It, it actually does help. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it in the end it becomes a huge problem, to, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But you're you are addressing, you're not we're not just doing things for no reason. Yeah. We're doing things because there's a dislocation, because there's a pain, because there's something that we we can't function under. And so we found something that works. And a lot of my friends have described heroin as a warm hug. And, you know, so they have, haven't received that and they didn't even know they needed it and then they found something that met that need and man, that's strong. That um, is strong. You know, or, or, you know, why do we, why do we go and when we're feeling depressed or lonely or bored, we go in and go to the fridge and eat a cake, you know? You know, that, that didn't make, that cake doesn't deal with my loneliness. Right. But it's meeting a need. But if I become, if I make that attachment really strong, that becomes a huge problem. You know? Yeah. And, and so we're all in that place, but very few of us know it. And that's why when I do talk to guys in, in actual like drug addiction programs, I say, realize that you're blessed, that you became aware of this yeah. as something that you had to deal with. Whereas a lot of other people have just no idea of what they're going through.
0: Well, I often think um, I'm an alcoholic and a heroin addict myself. And in the last few years, largely because of Bruce, I realized that I was brought up in an AA culture and I'm so grateful to the steps. But they, 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 the narrative that I was encouraged to say looked like this. Um, I'm peers and you know my parents were married for 50 years and the expectation was that I would go to college like they did and yada, yada, yada. And then around sixth grade, I made this kind of perverse decision to play with these bad boys and start smoking weed in the way we went. And it was only through being in dislocation theory that I came to realize that's a lie. Mm. You know, yeah, that's everything's true that I just said, but, you know, my mother had some very deep-seated issues. I grew up in a racially charged, dangerous environment, sexual abuse, all of it, you know? And so there's something about that trauma, stress, dislocation narrative, meeting the steps in a new, more truthful way. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine a lot of the people you work with, they don't need to get honest like that because they know they come from some, what they come from.
1: Yeah. yeah. They
0: don't, you know, there's something oddly Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing that can find its way in some 12 step circles.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it can become quite doctrinaire for sure. I remember being in a in a meeting once and someone said, Well, you know, as an addict, I tend to overthink things. And I go, Well, I overthink things too, you know. <laughs> I don't, but I've never used heroin. I don't know if that's like I don't think that's just unique to, you know, there's there's unique trauma and everyone has a unique story that, that no question about that. But what Alexander does so well, I think, and what I try and get across in the book is we're actually we're all trying to adapt to something that a way of living that we need to probably examine a little bit more that that there's just social and economic and, and, you know, kinship relationships that are so broken. So diseased, that, uh, that we're all trying to figure out what to do. and, And we don't really know what our purpose is or meaning or all that kind of stuff. And we're trying to create that for ourselves and we're not very good at it. Um, And then there's forces that actually exist, which are are seeking to do that for us and make us be consumers or producers or, you know, this kind of thing, and so we're all in this huge displacement, and uh, and it's no wonder that we're turning to things that give us comfort, you know, and so that you know the 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 old moral understanding of addiction is, well, you know, you just had a, you're just immoral and you turn to those things. I I, no, I mean that's just it makes sense. Like, there's a reason why we turn to those things. Yeah. And, and we may not even be consciously aware of those reasons, but there is a reason for it. And once we become aware of it, then and become aware of the larger reason for why we go there, that gives us an opportunity to, to maybe make some better decisions or, or, or choose a different way. Um, but, uh, you know, so there's that moralistic, and then there's the medicalized version now, which is just, well, you had no choice. It was either predetermined by your genetics or the the, um, the drug itself was just so strong that you had no you know no option it, it flipped a switch in your brain and off you go you have no choice anymore. And I just don't think that's really founded even scientifically no. um, So you know this whole medical moral model uh, I, t- I tend to think is not terribly helpful um, as a model so I, I think we can do better better. And, and I think that that's where I'm, I'm talking to the church saying, you know, you, you may not have a vision for how to change the entire uh, the entirety of society, but you can create a different kind of community, a different kind of way of being that is good for you and for others for dealing with these things in a way that I think God intended
0: us to deal with them. Right. Which really is true to the gospel and the first centuries of the church. I think so. Yeah. 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 I mean, so it's so funny because if you, and I mean, this is why I love Dunnington because he addresses the very thing you just described. But, you know, if you, if you push too hard against the medical model, you're going to be perceived as conservative, whatever you want to call it, yeah. Moralistic. Yeah. Um, and then if you push against the the uh, moral model, then you're going to be perceived as lenient or no accountability in your game. And that sort of, yeah. So one of the things that I had to work out, and Alexander helped me with this too, was the notion of sin. And, you know, in the big book, sin, they just call it selfishness, you know, Concupiscence, I guess Augustine would say, you know, disordered yeah. desire. Yeah. And but then Alexander makes this, you know, strong point that addiction is not ubiquitous. Intact indigenous cultures don't have addiction. It's you know, and so then you're left with this. And he um. He does say that there is a societal, or he gets this from this Ignacio martin Barrow guy their societal sin where you reward and promote the worst things in human nature. Yeah. Which I, we're definitely there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine your message to people is you're, 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 you're always sort of taking that up. Aren't you?
1: Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. Which isn't, I mean, some people will say, well, again, oh, you're just removing the accountability from the individual there. And I said, no, I don't think I am. I'm just saying there's something bigger at play here. I mean, again, if you wanna look at it scripturally, right at the very beginning, in, in, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and it was chaos. And it suggests that there's something not quite right going on, you know, that there, there's, there's a brokenness
0: mm-hmm.
1: around us. And part of our, our role in a sense is in cooperation with God is to be uh, people bringing reconciliation to those things you know, but there is a brokenness that we didn't cause, we didn't create. There is a brokenness in the society around us that we didn't make, but it does affect us. And, and sort of societally, you know, that is true. And I don't think anybody would necessarily deny that. That there, so brokenness is not, and there's, brokenness is different than sinfulness. Brokenness is stuff that's happened to us. It's, um, it, it's something we don't control. Sinfulness, I would describe as more, I'm, I choose to make allegiance with that brokenness.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, so and that's, you know, when again, biblically, if you look at the fall, that's sort of a choice to make allegiance with the brokenness that's already there. You didn't create it. You chose to ally with it. And what I want to call us to is actually we're called to be repairers of the breach,
0: restorers
1: of the places that have been long devastated. And so we're not just called to be rescued from brokenness. We're actually called to be uh, those who help restore brokenness, restore wholeness yeah uh, in ourselves and in others and that's i think that's the role of the church i think that's what we're made for uh and i think where we see the church just cooperating with the brokenness of the world um you know and, and really enhancing and highlighting that that's a huge problem because we're not doing what we we're made to do and and that's where i think our connection to the recovery groups and so on is so important that we can help we can help each other in that restoration unto holiness unto wholeness yeah. really yeah I know that's a lot of maybe theological jargon, but I I do think it's important in the way to speak to churches that we have an active role in this. And we we have compromised with with the broken, you know, the stuff, the the chaos, the void. And that's not our job. Our job is the opposite.
0: And wherever you may find yourself, there is a portion of the world given to you to attend to
1: absolutely yeah. which is not just in my neighborhood i mean it's very easy to see chaos and void in my neighborhood you know you walk down this people people have died on my front steps you know in this last couple of months it's very easy to see that but it's also true in those malls yeah you know, I, I took a bunch of teens once i wrote about this in the book to, to go uh, around a christmas time to go and do what we call the slow walk through the mall where we just got in a big line oh, yeah I,
0: I love that <laughs> yeah.
1: just <to> walk this slow <laughs> Possible through the mall. Security wasn't
0: impressed. Where they? Oh
1: man! Within within ten minutes, they were there and wanting to throw us out, and you know, threatened me with a lifetime ban. Which I'm like, I don't think you understand what's going on here. Um, but I just I wanted to show the team like why is there this this incredible reaction? And it's it was like the reaction if you were cutting off a drug supply for somebody. You know, it was that kind of violent, angry, uh, knee jerk reaction. I say because that's what we're doing. We're touching on. An addiction supply here. We're touching on the brokenness of the world, and and all we're doing is walking slowly, you know? yeah. We're just not agreeing with it, and the world has to react violently to that. Yeah. Um, and and that you know you see that the moment you kind of step out of line on the narrative of the world,
0: man, you get you get blasted. Yeah. So, correct me if I'm getting the phrase wrong you are describing birthing or bringing together realizing a beatitude community Mm -hmm. that's sort of the central theme yeah that was there any epiphany or i mean how did you how did you come to that had that been something you've been working with for a long time deliberately it is i think the
1: the moment the epiphany moment was there a greek word someone translated that word blessed because i i didn't actually like the word blessed because it's been used so cavalierly it's just been, oh you know blessed or i've seen a shirt saying i'm too blessed to be stressed or whatever you know a lot of nonsense just this these christian cliches which drive me up the wall so you know bless you just almost meant nothing but then someone translated it now you, i explain this in the book is the word "makarios," which which has this really crazy meaning, which is like the life of the gods or the glorious dead or the incredibly wealthy, the ones who seem to be beyond uh, the, the worries of death. And I was like, whoa, how? okay, if that's true. And if Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he seems to be applying that word in a really strange way. Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the persecuted. You know, it seems very odd. And so I started looking at that and said, so what does that mean? And I, I, I came to this epiphany that, oh, he's actually talking about his life, which he's inviting us into, that we can't just imitate him. And that's a lot of the idea in the church is, well, just try and be as much like Jesus as you can in your own strength and give it a go. But you're going to fail. You're just going to sin tomorrow. And then, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you'll go to heaven when you die. I was like, well, that didn't seem like very good news to me. <laughs> and, and it wasn't really something I could say to people going through the hell of addictions. You know, well, there's no real help for today. Just try your best. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, that doesn't seem like really good news. Um, so I, I started to see it as, oh, he's actually welcoming us in to participate in this life of the divine, which is the early church uh, very much understood this. There's a concept called theosis, which was. Um, actually joining in union with God, man, when I got that, like that, that's what salvation means to join in union with God and to be daily satisfied and new. And then you're, you're just growing in your satisfaction. I'm like, Whoa, that seemed to me like something that would actually speak to the issue of addictions, but also just the issue of the, the dissatisfaction. Most of us were feeling in church or just in life. So, so I then I, I started going through these Beatitudes of Jesus and going, oh, I think he's describing his life and the life that we were made for and the life of community. Because I've been working with close community for a long time and in a lot of frustrating ways. And then seeing these as Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers, wrote the sermons on the Beatitudes, the, the which was just, okay, these are, la- these are steps on a ladder begins with poverty of spirit and then I started seeing the connection with the 12 steps and it was just it was all a big epiphany there
0: yeah so why is it that the brokenness and the poverty is the doorway hmm.
1: yeah because I think that the, the the fundamental Sin, if you will, is a, a lack of an unbelief that God either can or will meet our need. And so from that place of, of unbelief, we we seek to do it ourselves. So you see again biblically the, the tower of Babel in the book of Genesis, where they say, We're going to make a name for ourselves. And, and people kind of wonder, well, why would God be upset about them getting together and cooperating and stuff? And it's because they, they essentially were saying, we will do this thing, which God actually wants for us, but we'll take it into our own hands. Because that's in, in Genesis 11. In Genesis 12, God says to Abram, I will make your name great. You know, in Genesis 11, they're saying, we will make our name great. And God's like, I want that for you. All these things that you want, I want for you. But if you're trying to grasp it in your hands, uh, it's it's just not going to work because you're not good at that. You know, we're not actually good at it. Augustine said, you know, God constantly wants to pour blessing into our hands, but our hands are too full to receive it. Mm -hmm. So it's that it's why it's that kind of opening our hands and going, okay, I will trust, which I think that's the fundamental starting point of any beginning. Mm -hmm.
0: And so if we don't open our hands, it's because we've been clutching at idols, even though we may not even recognize them as such. That's right. It could be family. Yeah. It, could be, it could be being a do-gooder. Yep. Yep. Could be religion. Yeah. Uh,
1: could, be, could be all kinds of things. I mean, I'm working with a lot of pastors now. And I think 25 years of working with uh, alcoholics and drug addicts has uniquely prepared me to work with senior pastors Um, because these these folk are grasping things Mm -hmm. they are deeply addicted Mm -hmm. and again it's not that's not just sin like that's we we do that because we we're trying to meet a need you know a a genuine need that's there and it's just not the the, it's not the thing that's going to meet that but we're afraid to let it go
0: when does it become sin that grasping so I've, I've
1: got a friend, his name is Jim McNeish. He's a fantastic psychotherapist, psychologist. And he talks about rackets. He says, we've got this thing going on to protect us. It's not the real issue, but it's sort of the chaos we create around us. And it could be drug addiction or lots of other things. He says, a, a, a racket, we don't actually know really that we're even doing it. Once we become aware that we're doing it and see that there's, a, there's another issue that we're using this stuff to hide from it, then we're participating in it. So I think once you become really aware of what you're doing, that that the issue actually isn't my heroin addiction. The issue is the the pain that I'm running away from, but I'm going to keep doing this and and the chaos that it causes and the hurt that it causes me and others. Then I think we're actually consciously um, participating with that brokenness. I think that's where it could become more of a sin issue. Mm -hmm. For the most part, we don't even know what we're doing, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing I do with my clients is I, I basically explain, in my own case, I'm just a manufactured consumer. Yeah. I'm a little dislocated kid and you dangle sex, drugs and rock and roll and I don't, there's no choice in any of that.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, that's, that's what, uh, you know, that's what this thing is so good at. When uh, when the little red dot shows up on the notification thing, they know it. It it, it actually touches a little kind of <laughs> neurobiological center, and like ooh, you know, you get you start getting that that reward, and uh, you know, we're we're all we are manufactured a lot in that way, and I don't I mean, that's not what we're made for, and and I think it takes a lot of unlearning to to get away from that kind of thing.
0: So there's something about the path for lack of a better term that involves that sweet spot of you know it's Romans but I'm doing something wrong and I know it's wrong Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and everything seems at least with those of us coming out of addiction it's in that dynamic that that has to be the place of cultivation or beginning on some level Or or it has to be appealed to or spoken to.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, Soren Kierkegaard wrote about despair a lot. And yeah, (laughs) in a very, in a very helpful way. And also sometimes a very, sometimes confusing way, but he said, there's the despair of knowing that you're in despair and that's bad. That feels bad, but at least, you know, then there's the despair of not, of being in despair, but not knowing it. Yeah. And he said, that's my message to the church. And to society, is you're in despair, but you don't even know it. Yeah. He said, "I'm in despair, and I know it." Yeah. And and that's actually better than than being in despair and not knowing it. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that's the large state of our world is being in despair but not knowing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's so sad is I'll see people that will. Um, They'll have addictions and they'll get into recovery, not sobriety, they'll get into recovery. They'll even taste something of the spirit, non Christian or not. And then when they leave, you know, it's almost like they're in a little blessed community for a period of time because they're with these people that share this brokenness. But then when they go back into the world, it's not long before everything becomes leasing a car and getting a gym pass and working 62 hours a week. Yeah. As though that was, that's, you know, that's, I don't like the word recovery for that reason. Yeah. Because it suggests I'm trying to get back to something. Right. Whatever that was, it wasn't working anyway. Yeah. So what am I so running headlong?
1: Um, Uh, So the word, when I use the word recovery or recovering, I I like the idea, uh, we're recovering the image of God in us. Yeah. The image of God is being recovered in us because I'm totally with you there. Like what I saw, it just didn't, it was so illogical that coming into recovery communities, people understood it as community, you know? And the best thing that the 12 steps do and recovery communities do is they create um, space where people can be honest and vulnerable, where there's confession, where that, you know, you're hearing from each other, you're having to work together. You're often in the same rooms all the time and it can be so frustrating, but that's the work. But then it seemed like the goal of those, communities was to get people back out into these kind of sodalities, these, these individualized life back out into the world that had broken them in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought, how is that success? How is that our sense of, we're just trying to make people often the term would be productive citizens. Mm-hmm. That that's not our purpose. Mm-hmm. Our purpose is not to be productive citizens. It's not that work is bad or that's, it's good stuff, you know, but, but our purpose isn't that. And it's not to be alone. And it seemed like we understood that uh, the recovery time or treatment time meant community, but that the goal of that was to be able to stand on your own two feet and be an individual. Right. I and mean, it's like, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would that be the goal if that's what broke us? Yeah. You know, are we just trying, is, is this whole thing just trying to fit people into a society that is fundamentally dislocated and, and unhealthy? Yeah. Why would we
0: be trying to fit people into that? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, many of the stories that you tell this, this doesn't happen. I mean, people, you know, Um, I'm thinking I can't remember names off the top of my head, but you tell the story of the pretty, pretty tough guy, um, you know, kind of master of the streets and did his time in prison and I'm sure he's one to reckon with and, somebody just said don't you want to come in here where it's warm yeah and never look back
1: yeah yeah it's my friend stan he's down the street lives down the street from me and he runs a recovery home for guys that's, that's a great story he's got a beautiful video out of his life actually of him and one of the guys he used to sell drugs to um and he just says you know there was many times i thought about just murdering this guy now uh, he became a video producer this other guy and they, they made this movie together it was it's really fascinating but again this the sweetest guy now and and police just will not believe that he's changed that much
0: right they think this is just another hustle
1: yeah but it, I mean it's he's started I think four or five different recovery homes now for guys I mean it's just yeah. just a beautiful guy and um, yeah like there's hope there but he understands that that uh, recovery means, like, I'm going to be in in a community. I'm going to be living differently for the rest of my life because yeah. this this the way that I was functioning in a world, my response, my adaptation to the world in which I was, that was my adaptation, yeah. and it worked for me for a bit. But it's actually that's it's harmful to me and to others, yeah. and so I need a different way of of living.
0: So, you know, from reading the book, it's it's obvious that you're moving in. Uh, a diverse demographic, lots of First Nations people, lots of African Americans, um, lots of women, lots of people coming from sex work, probably a lot of kids really I mean teenagers yeah. does it does your community transcend class? Do you How see do you- people from the middle and upper middle class joining joining you? Yeah. And I mean, it's, that's, it's
1: tricky. It, it does happen. Um, but again, there's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen for that to happen. We have a lot of people who will come on mission trips to, the, to our neighborhood. And uh, groups now will often kind of say, hey, can you go and just sort of break them <laughs> when they first come down? <laughs> I'm like, all right, Um a on a mission trip. Yeah. <laughs> See, they're, they're coming down. They're all wearing the same coats or shirts. And, you know, they, everybody has a good intention. Um, but, uh, you know, I've had people come down saying, you know, said, well, what are you doing here? Why are you in my neighborhood? They're like, well, we want to come and help the poor and expect nothing in return. I'm like, well, why would you expect nothing from my friends? You know, that, that's a horrible way to think about people. Um, so there's a lot of that that needs to be unlearned um, before... I think we can actually receive people as blessing and not as project or burden. Right. Because um, mission groups will see people as projects. Long-term people who've come from other kind of class backgrounds coming into the neighborhood tend to eventually see people as burdens. They're, you know, If you're here long enough, your heart gets hard. You, you know, people just, it's frustrating because people are frustrating. And they don't, people don't kind of abide by social norms particularly well in our kind of neighborhood. And so there has to be a different uh, approach is understanding people as a blessing, not a burden. Yeah. And and it's taking people seriously as friends. So yes, it does happen, but that's probably the biggest barrier is those expected power dynamics, even people with the best of intentions. You know, I, I know if I walk into any place, any church around the world, um, there's a solid chance they'll give me the pulpit. Um, it's because confidence and background and the way I look and, and that kind of stuff. Most of my friends, that's not the case. And and I know as well that I can kind of, in this neighborhood, I can control a conversation, I can exert power. And even when I went down to Cape Town in South Africa um, in a, a community of what they call a Cape colored community, very dangerous. there was a gang fight going on, very dangerous community, but I walked around and everyone just, they knew I wasn't part of, you know, nobody would touch me, yeah.
0: you
1: know, because of the, the power dynamic that I carry. And so that's also a poverty of spirit kind of discussion to be having with people. How do we lay that stuff down while still being honest about the power that we carry and, and honest about our agendas and, and all those things? There's an, it, that takes a lot of work um, to do. Uh, and it can be quite, that, that's a long time, I think, of work.
0: The single most powerful takeaway from your book, and I'm gonna butcher you, I think, but, was to receive graciously as an act of humility. Mm-hmm. And if I find myself in something where I'm always the helper, then I'm, that is, you know, I'm denying, I'm denying grace. I'm denying, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that really means, and that's just, that's, to me, that's, that turns the world upside down right there. Yeah. And it's not
1: easy to receive. And in fact, you're trained pastorally not to, not to show any kind of need or vulnerability or anything like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember talking to a group of guys. I don't know if this is in the book or not. I can't remember, but a um, group of guys in recovery and you know that, the thing you, you kind of bump into someone and say, Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm Okay. You know, and I said, now, most of the time, that's a lie. You know, we're not actually doing good. And, and we really need to be caring for each other. Well, I said, so when you see me on the street, I want you to ask me how I'm doing. And if I say, OK, I want you to really go, no, but how are you really doing? And I went a week and nobody did that. And I came back the next week and I said, hey, guys, I bumped into a bunch of you. I said I was doing OK, but nobody asked me how I was really doing. And they said, oh, we thought you were kidding. <laughs> like, because you're like the guy, you know. You're the guy up front. You do the. T- you, we didn't think. And I said, no, no, I was, I was serious. You know, I need help. Like you guys didn't ask me at all. I had a bad week, and you nobody was checking in on me. So then that next week was actually almost impossible because everybody I was bumping into, they're like, no, but how are you really doing? You
0: know.
1: And I had to be, oh, now, where were
0: going? Yeah, you know? now
1: I got to be really vulnerable and honest before. But but actually, there is a yeah, there's a blessing that we're meant to receive from one another there's a mutuality that we're meant to receive and that's very difficult when you're a carrier of power to do yeah. that very difficult. i mean
0: i i i even find myself after sometimes i get honest like you described which you know it's not always and afterwards i'm like oh shit did i because now he's not going to have the same confidence in me right. as a helper you know it's really,
1: very, yeah. I don't know. One of the most, there's a guy who's kind of staying with us right now. And um, I, I've just, I've known him for 15 years and he's, he can be a difficult guy, but I really love him. He's a friend of mine. And um, one of my, one of the kind of watershed moments for me was I have a, a friend in, in Minneapolis who I learned had cancer and he was uh, not doing well. And I was going to go see him and I just assumed I was going to go and and, and bury him essentially. Now he's since he's, he's actually recovered miraculously really. But at that time I didn't know I was sitting at my dinner table and this guy came by and he's a bit of a, he's a hard guy, but he just saw that I wasn't doing well. And he goes, Hey, what's going on? And I said, well, my friend is dying. And, and he just hugged me, you know, and, and I was able to cry and I hadn't really been able to before. And it was just that, that reception of his love, this guy who, you know, his life has been so hard and he actually wants to die. He, he won't, he won't take his own life, but he wants to die. But he just hugged me, said, I know it's hard, you know, and it just, it was so beautiful that I was able that, that in that moment of vulnerability, you know, where some of my walls are broken down, he, he broke through that and was able to just minister to me in such a beautiful way. Yeah. Um, I'm so thankful to him for that.
0: Have you ever heard of the silly gross mom?
1: No, I don't think
0: so. He's a, he was a Soviet. Well, he got punished by them. Anyway, he was uh, one of the first people to... Um, he was embedded with Pravda, with the journalists. He was one of the first journalists to liberate a concentration camp. And he was embedded in Stalingrad, so he saw it all. And then he was persecuted by Stalin. But he has a character who's kind of like one of these holy fools in Russian literature. hmm been through all of it and this guy says he goes the only reason to believe in god is because kindness cannot be destroyed yeah this kindness is indestructible yeah and it will flower anywhere if the world can't has not destroyed kindness yet then it is immortal yeah yeah I, i think that's so true so easily forgotten
1: yeah it, it actually is. That's the word. Kindness is the word that I try and speak over people the most. When I see kindness on the street, wherever, I will always call it out. I say, I just saw, I saw that kindness in you. And that to me is something of the heart of God. You know, whatever, you know, you, I, I love speaking that over people because there is something. It's not nice. It's not niceness. Mm-hmm. There's something about kindness and God manifesting that in and through us, Um, which, man, I just love it when I see it. I think it's a miracle every time. I think it's so beautiful.
0: So I kind of set you up. (laughs) But the character, your friend that touched me the deepest was Lena. Mm, Yeah. And because I think she speaks to this whole constellation of things we're talking about. Yeah. So could you just tell the audience a little about this remarkable person?
1: She, I mean, she really is remarkable. Um, she is, I would say, the most marginalized person that I know, and that's saying something. Um, since we've known her, and it's been about seventeen years, she was n- has not been able to really control her body. Now it's it's degenerated quite a bit, but she couldn't c- couldn't control her limbs. Um, but but really became very central in our community, uh, became very good friends with a lot of our, our uh, community members, um, stood for people in their weddings and baby dedications and things like that, and um, just would is, was so disruptive. Um, you know, one of those people who you just cannot really have a meeting with um, if she, you can't, well, whatever agenda you have for that meeting, it's, it's going to be disrupted. She, she's just, she's loud and, and, and so on. And we have, we're having, I wrote about this in the book, but we had a meeting and it's, it's one of the stories actually that our community, everyone in our community remembers. we were trying to have this prayer meeting around, do we really hear the voice of God in the poor at the center of who we are? Are we really listening? And uh, I, I decided very piously, we'd have 10 minutes of silent prayer to really consider this. And it's the moment we began, we heard her crashing up the stairs. We were on the third floor and just, just yelling and swearing up the stairs. Who the fuck is up there? You know what's going on? And, uh, and I'm like, oh, man. And we all knew if she made it up the stairs, there was going to be no silence. And we're all just kind of waiting. And she, find, she makes it up the stairs and she crashes in and she goes, what's going on here? You know. And then I try and explain. And she won't let me. And she just runs to her friend, um, Courtney, who's one, her best friend. She just picks her up, grabs her, looks her in the face, like right close, and goes, I love you. Kisses her on the face, puts her down. This is all pre COVID, you know, so it's all okay. Uh, And then goes around and does that with every single person in the room. And then sits down in the middle of our circle and says, Now, what are we talking about tonight? (laughs)
0: Like, well,
1: we were just asking the (laughs) question (laughs) Do we hear from God? (laughs) From the poor in the center Uh of who we are. And God wanted to say, yeah, like, I want to talk to you. And I want to tell you that I love you, but I want you to hear that through Lena. I want, that's who I want you to hear. And so as I was writing the book, I knew I'd have to put that in. And actually one of my friends, Caitlin Spence, uh, she said, now, I know you're going to want to put that story in, but I wonder, have you visited her recently? And I hadn't seen her in a little while because she has a way of um, disappearing a little bit. um, But also a way of disappearing from your thoughts a little bit because she's, she's difficult and disruptive people. It's just easier sometimes not to be around them. You know, That's just the truth. And it's a hard truth, but it's true. But she, she does actually long for community and she's you know still in active use and so on. And she has a friend who cares for her beautifully. And so I went and I found her and visited with her and she's in a wheelchair now, but she remembered us. She could barely kind of talk coherently, but she remembered us. And I've seen her and visited her a few times since. And I'm very thankful for my friend to remind me. You must, you must remember, folk. You know they're not just a story that happened once. They're an ongoing um, right. challenge to you, challenge yeah. to your ordered life, your protected and safe life. Like I have the option of not answering the phone. I have the option of not answering the door. I have the option of not having her in my life. Yeah. And she's a challenge to all my thoughts around what holistic living and you know all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah, right. is. You know because right. I can't. I can't fix her. There's and there, there's nobody on this earth who can, right? Um, but I can seek to love her and be loved by her, mm-hmm. and and that is actually God speaking to us, I think, through her.
0: Simone Veil said, "Love was a direction."
1: Yeah, yeah. There's another challenging person.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, she and I, I walked with her for almost thirty years, and I still don't think I yeah yeah (laughs) Um, i love i love her idea that you know all you
1: can do you can't take one step towards god but you can raise your your eyes yeah towards god and god like that's what you can do you can't actually make that step but you can raise your eyes and god will step towards you
0: everything's attention yeah yeah so i have a feeling that uh, this interview is going to arouse a bit of curiosity about your work and things you're associated with. Is there some sort of thumbnail of things you could describe or direct people to? Well, I mean, again, I give, I give direction to, to 24 seven
1: prayer Canada. And um, people can go to that 24 seven prayer Canada.com. And there's a, a website that kind of describes some things there. It, That's a a particular ministry really to the church. And what we're trying to do there is help people, especially in this time of huge global displacement. I mean, just massive displacement. Understand the intimate connection between prayer and mission and justice. That prayer is not this disembodied thing. It's actually, uh, and it's, nor is it the fuel for our work. It's actually the, the open door to union with God, to this fellowship and communion with God. And when we're in that place, then I, I have experienced and believe and, and teach that, that he will then show us his beloved. You know, so, so that our, our action in the world doesn't just lose itself and become dangerous, it actually becomes directed. Where God says, I want you to love this person, not just love generally, not just love theoretically, not just try and do justice as a theory, but actually to embody it, to go and find your neighbor and listen to their heart and, and listen to me and listen to them and align your actions towards them and with them. Um, so that prayer, mission, and justice become this holistic thing. And that's what we're trying to get across to the church in, in Canada.
0: Um, and I'm sorry, this is 27 prayer or 27 for prayer.
1: 247 prayer. So like not seven oh, prayer. I yeah. got you. 247 prayercanada.com. People can check that out. Um, and there's various levels. There's various on-ramps to that. You know, there's just sort of basic level kind of how do you pray to um, how do you go on a, on a pilgrimage? You know, I've done prayer pilgrimages down to refugee camps in Guatemala and, and Southern Mexico where our goal was really just to go and meet people and pray and, and just hear from them. And, and I got, I, I just, this beautiful Southern this refugee settlement in Southern Mexico I was miserable, we had, had a long day, it was raining, I didn't really wanna go in. I said, I don't know what we have to, to offer. I, I still had that mindset. And we went in and found people who had come from Africa, they'd, they'd flown to Brazil and had walked up to Mexico and were stuck there. And they were French speaking, and I speak French and it's really my heart language. And I was able to just to, 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 to communicate and to pray with people in French in Southern Mexico. And it was just, I'm like, this is it. <laughs> This is, this is a foretaste of glory right here and right now, you know. Um,
0: so, so just yeah. that little thing you said, uh, that prayer is not fuel, but it's an opening. I mean, that's paradigm shifting for me right here.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. We were made
1: to pray. We were, we were made to be in communion with God forever and to enjoy him forever.
0: And to open and, the door to the beloved.
1: Yeah. It, it opens, it opens us. I mean, I just remember being in prayer once and, and just being actually in despair around my neighborhood going, I don't know what to do. And, and I just really sensed God say, well, would you look at me? And so I kind of just turned my attention away from myself. And, to, you know, I've, I'm like the, the star in my own movie in my head. Right. But I actually looked away and God said, oh, finally, you're looking at something worth looking at. Now, let me show you who I love and I want you to love them, you know, but it was individuals. It wasn't just everybody. Right. You know. Because we, can't, we don't have the capacity for that. And we're overwhelmed. Our capacity is overwhelmed with all the stuff we're hearing. But actually, we're called to love our neighbor.
0: Right. Um, anything? Any other places? 27 Prayer Canada? 24- 27
1: Prayer. I would say probably the jacobswell.ca is another website that I would I would recommend people to. That's our local uh, group. And they're we really try and practice uh, that we are invited to God's table and that then we invite each other to the table. Um, But then we actually, there are aspects of the world, the system of the world that are not invited to the table. You know, so we're, we're called to be friends with God and friends with one another, but we're actually not called to be friends with a system of brokenness. Right. You know so so we try and practice that that intimacy and in prayer and intimacy around the table but a non friendship with with things in the world, not people but right. systems and structures that are harmful we say actually no that's not we're not okay with that and we don't want to compromise or, or befriend that. So that's but Jacob somebody, well, that's
0: if somebody son. worked for one of those institutions they're more than welcome as individuals. Absolutely absolutely
1: though there may be as they find friendship with god they may discover that 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 friendship with the world might not be tenable anymore which the early early church certainly had that that practice you know you they said well you can't really be uh, in the the army and in this like it doesn't work you know you're you're part of what you're doing there's worshiping the emperor and so on you
0: can't do that so there it leads to tough questions And do you ever come stateside?
1: Yeah, uh, quite frequently. um, When there's not a global pandemic, (laughs) I I, I make my way down there a fair amount. Um, Over the last 17 years or 18 years, I have, yeah.
0: You are broadly ecumenical?
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so.
0: I mean, reading your your book, it was just, it's just so wonderful. all the theological. <laughs> you go everywhere, man. Well, I mean, I just I read a
1: lot. <laughs> I read an awful lot, and I I love to pursue threads. And so wherever I find them, I'll just I'll pursue that. And I I, I, I don't care. Um, probably theologically, I line up with Orthodox the most in some ways. And and in my beard kind of situation, I do. Oh, yeah, you got to look down. Yeah, and I you know can put on the hoodie and kind of do the right. whole thing. Um, very low church, but very yeah, very ecumenical, and and uh, because I actually think that a deep commitment, uh, a narrow commitment, deep and narrow commitment to one particular denominational thread is actually a type of idolatry and addiction.
0: I couldn't agree more.
1: And and it stops us from being able to really receive from others. And so I'm not I'm not interested in that.
0: And do any have has the recovery community found you to a degree? I mean, be, beyond locally. Have they have they found you as a result of writing the book?
1: Not not yet I mean it only came out in August and uh, you know during a very odd time of, of the world and and truthfully I, I haven't sought to, to stick my head up very much you know I, I'm quite happy to be impacting locally and then to trust that this finds an audience as people read it and share it um, I'm not I'm just I'm, I'm fairly unattached or detached to the success or whatever of it i think it's an important message um but i'm not i'm not connecting any kind of personal worth or anything like that to to it being successful um so yeah i mean as it as it works i'm happy for it to be a contribution to people's lives
0: well my prayer is that my tribe reads this book and i'm gonna do my part <laughs> well i appreciate it and, and
1: I, I love people's feedback as well because i'm definitely still learning
0: yeah well for me it's such a you know i've been i mean it just hits everything i'm a christian 12 stepper who's deeply engaged with dislocation theory and mm-hmm. along comes this book and so um auspicious to say the least hmm um well with that i want to thank you so very very much and folks the name of the book once again there's his glasses i'll read the whole thing recovering recovering from brokenness and addiction to blessedness in community by aaron White. in the last sentence in the book be a great way to finish aaron writes Friends, there is hope. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.